0: This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Wrestleomics Radio. I'm Brandon Thurston, broadcasting on demand from Buffalo, New York. It is May 22nd, 2020, and I just spent about half an hour Messing around with the microphone and the audio levels here in the WrestleNomic Studio. Also known as my walk-in closet. Bain's subject today is going to be, you guessed it, coronavirus. I've spent a lot of the past seven days or so looking at COVID-19 data as it concerns the regions where wrestling events are still happening in empty buildings. Empty building events still happening in Japan the United States and Mexico what's COVID-19 like in the United States particularly in Florida particularly in Duval and Orange County what's COVID-19 like particularly in the Tokyo area and I know what you're thinking by god this is Russell Russellnomics Brandy, you're, you're not a medical expert you're just a guy who knows a bunch of Russell facts and knows how to do some Excel formulas very true Considering that, I reached out to Dr. Alex Patel, which many of you may have heard on Wrestling Observer Radio and on Post Wrestling. Other things we may get into today. A VP of Global TV Production for WWE has left the company. We just might have the time to do a brief history of WWE's US TV rights. And since I have been having Tuesdays and Thursdays off, I spent the entire day yesterday, Thursday, going through Google Trends. And fruitlessly are not lining them up against every WWE title reign uh, for the last 16 years, what did I learn? We'll find out in a little bit. But first... The XFL, which is filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy several weeks back, and is now up for sale, may be bought back by XFL founder Vince McMahon. According to Daniel Kaplan of TheAthletic.com, his sources have told him that XFL president Jeffrey Pollock who apparently still has a job, has called venues in St. Louis and Seattle to talk to them about reinstating the lease agreements. Kaplan reached out, but the XFL declined to comment. Other clues suggesting that Vince McMahon is looking at running the XFL again in the future is Vince's apparent effort to refund ticket buyers. In other news broken by PW Insider, Michael Mansbury, the vice president of global television production, is no longer working for WWE. According to PW Insider and the Wrestling Observer Newsletter, Mansbury was in a role where he was considered by some to be the heir apparent to Kevin Dunn, WWE's longtime executive vice president of television production. That news fuels continued speculation that maybe executive vice president and son-in-law to Vince McMahon Paul Levesque has lost some power in WWE. A few months back after the WWE proxy statement had dropped in March There's speculation that Levesque had been, in a sense, demoted, partly related to his new EVP title, and a joke he made about it later on SmackDown, seeming to acknowledge the speculation. And then from there, in TV ratings news, or should I say TV viewership news this week, most remarkably, the Dark Side of the Rings series aired its last episode of Season 2, where the subject was the death of Owen Hart, The program that aired at 10 p.m. Eastern on Tuesday night was viewed by 349,000 viewers with an 18 to 49 demographic rating of 0.18. That's higher, notably, than NXT's 18 to 49 demographic rating on Wednesday night of 0.13. Again, the Owen Hart episode doing a 0.18, NXT doing a 0.13. Total viewership, though, for NXT was 592,000, higher than the Owen Hart episode's 349,000. Nonetheless, that was the most viewed episode of Dark Side of the Ring to date. Some are saying it's the most viewed program in the history of the Voice Network. I haven't been able to find records to confirm that. Nonetheless, it's an impressive viewership for Dark Side of the Ring, especially considering. The Vice Network is in about 68 million homes, according to Nielsen estimates from February 2018, compared to the USA Network, which I believe to be in almost 90 million homes. The Owen Hart episode of Dark Side of the Ring ran head-to-head with a WWE Ruthless Aggression documentary on FS1. FS1 in about 80 million homes, again, Vice probably in around maybe 70 million homes at most. Ruthless Aggression at 10 p.m. doing a 0.06 in the demo, 214,000 viewers. Another episode of the Ruthless Aggression series does a 0.05 in the demo, 177,000 viewers. Again, uh, the Owen Hart episode of Dark Side of the Ring does a 0.18 in the demo, 349,000 viewers overall. So impressive performance for Dark Side of the Ring on a relatively new and relatively low-profile TV network drawing an audience in the key demo in excess of what NXT did in the following day. It's notable, too, that the episodes of Dark Side of the Ring on YouTube have done pretty well, both in the native uploads from Vice itself and from some unauthorized uploads. In other TV viewership news, though, NXT on Wednesday did its lowest viewership ever, both in terms of total audience and the key demo. AEW Dynamite, of course, running head-to-head, bounced back from its lowest performance ever, a total audience of 701,000 and a key demo of 0.26. That's up about 50,000 viewers from the prior week, and that's up two ratings points from the prior week in the key demo. SmackDown's uh, performance was very similar to what it did the prior week. Raw was down slightly, coming off of the Becky Lynch uh, pregnancy announcement. And I don't want to get too bogged down in the micro trends. I've said that before. But if you zoom back and pull the frame back to... The beginning of march you know i've been discussing this sort of on a weekly basis here what's the viewership attrition during the pandemic times here during a time where you've got really weird and unusual programming happening with no fans out there i heard dave Meltzer say earlier on twitter that you can't blame the booking it's the pandemic and come to think of it this is a good time for russell dubstep If you look at the data from, let's say, March 1st to the present, you put the data for all four programs, Raw, SmackDown, NXT, and AEW, on the same graph, which, of course, I have. You can find it on uh, Rustonomics on Twitter. If you put all four programs on the same graph, what you see is a linear trend for Raw and SmackDown that is declining faster than the trends for NXT and AEW. That's true both of the key demo and the total audience. So, again, main roster programming is declining faster than either NXT or AEW. And the trend lines uh, for main Monster program are actually quite predictive. Their trend lines have a relatively high R squared. What the hell does that mean? I'm certainly not a math expert, but from what I've learned over the last five years or so in studying uh, math and economics and Excel, is that in Excel, when you take a data series, like, for example, the viewership for Raw or the viewership for SmackDown, and when you draw a trend line over that series, you can have Excel calculate an R squared For that trend line okay and what the hell does that mean basically the r squared asks the question how good so far has this trend line been at predicting what the next data point would be and the higher the number the better the trend line is at predicting what the next data point is going to be basically a 1.0 means it's a perfect straight line a zero means it's totally random and a negative one means you've basically got a, a a perfect negative relationship and we've all had our share of perfect negative relationships haven't we but anyway the closest you are to one the more predictive the trend line is so for the key demo data from march 1st to the present smackdown has a 0.8 raw has a 0.7 nxt has a 0.5 and aew has a 0.4 so what does this all mean not only are raw and smackdown declining at a stronger rate than nxt or aew but their relatively high r squared numbers uh, suggest that there's a pretty strong relationship or a pretty strong level of predictability associated with these trend lines. Now that says nothing about human factors. Who knows? Maybe we're just uh, slowly getting toward this hard plateau where finally all the people who can deal with with the uh, empty building matches are going to be all you know the only ones left, and and viewership will decline no more. Or maybe you know the pandemic is going to uh, to end tomorrow, and there's going to be a vaccine found, and everything will be different. Maybe it'll it'll be a miracle. It'll just go away point is there's a lot of human factors that that can happen here. But the trend lines are, are pretty predictive. And Raw and SmackDown are declining faster than the other two programs. And I would suggest that that's related to the tenuous and distrustful relationship that W's customers have with the company. And I would argue that there is not a similar distrustful relationship with the NXT brand in specific or with AEW. And just for fun, yes, I did extrapolate the trend lines all the way out to another... 90 days and what you get is again this is the trend line from March 1st to present and if you extrapolate the trend line that you get from that data set extrapolate the trend line out an additional 90 days into the future you end up with AEW and NXT have just about the same gap but AEW and Raw and Smackdown are right in the same area extrapolate that maybe a month further into September and yes they are intersecting now I wouldn't go to Reddit and say that Brandon said that AEW is going to be doing uh, better in the key demo or in total viewership, than Raw or SmackDown uh, by September. But I I think that illustrates that Raw and SmackDown are suffering in a way that Dynamite and NXT are not. But these are trends that I'll continue to watch in the future, and I may reserve the right to make such a prediction or something in that neighborhood sometime later. I wouldn't be surprised, though, if you continue to see as the leaks go on here, AEW edge out Raw, maybe SmackDown, even though we get less public information about SmackDown that is by way of showbiz daily but i wouldn't be surprised if you continue to see aw at times maybe increasingly so edge out raw in certain demos particularly the younger demos so more russellomics after these messages
1: now more than ever you're worried about what's going to happen next You're scared for your well-being, your loved ones, your job. In fact, you're probably having a panic attack just thinking about it right now. Ongoing circumstances have forced everyone to rethink the future. Do you want to live in a world where you don't know off the top of your head the top five all-time pro wrestling attendances? When your children ask you whether the wrestling industry is a live event driven business or a media business and you don't know, what are you going to tell them? How will you feel? There's only one way to avoid this disaster. One plan that removes all the uncertainty. You need to enroll today in Nomics University. WrestleNomics University, now offering affordable student loans Your tuition can be paid for today through our exclusive financing program that allows you to make deductions against your future Social Security benefits. At WrestleNomics University, we help make everything easier right now and help you forget about the future. In these troubled times, now more than ever, enroll in WrestleNomics University.
0: And then from there everybody wants to know uh who's a draw, and I feel like that is the uh the low level subtext of of all this work um when people tweet at the uh the Wrestle-nomics account or at me personally, a lot of times people are asking me a question to support an argument that they're having with someone to tell them no, look, you're wrong so and so is a draw, or so-and-so is not a draw. Who's a draw? (sighs) And sometimes, for example, I see people ponder, to what extent someone like Baron Corbin, is he a negative draw? And I think pondering those kinds of questions is kind of like thinking about whether your new habit of ordering from Amazon all the time is... Contributing to your irreversibly cluttered home. You've had shit piled up in every corner of every room for a decade or two. And the floor stopped being visible like five years ago. And I think in that situation, yes, your new Amazon ordering habit is causing you to collect all kinds of extra cardboard and loose packaging. But the source of the problem is very much intrinsic to the person that is behind the problem and that your Amazon ordering habit is utterly piecemeal to your systematic dysfunction. You don't need to cancel Amazon Prime. You need psychotherapy and Marie Kondo. So in that sense, Baron Corbin and Amazon Prime are very much alike. But we're not going to talk about Baron Corbin because he's not a former WWE champion of of any any kind yet. Uh, The major men's titles anyway. So what I did here is I downloaded the CSV for Google Trends for the WWE topic. So that means it's measuring the relative search volume over time from 2004 to the present on a monthly basis. That's important, monthly basis. Uh, it's it's measuring searches for the string WB and whatever Google decides is uh, related to WWE. Since 2004, uh, that's 16 years. So we're not gonna deal with May 2020 because that's a partial month. I'm not gonna deal with that but every other month from January, 2004 to the present. So I took all that data and then I took the title histories for the WWE title, the world heavyweight title that used to exist, the big gold belt, let's call it, and the WWE universal title. So people who have been following WWE for a while will know the WWE title has existed for, for many decades. It has a constant lineage. The quote-unquote world heavyweight title is basically the WCW title that they, it is physically the, the, the likeness of the WCW title uh, that they sort of inherited and converted and renamed the world heavyweight title in 2002. When WWE decided for one, one reason or another that they wanted two major heavyweight titles. One on Raw, one on SmackDown, basically. So the World Heavyweight title and the WWE title coexisted for many years until they were unified, I believe, December 2013. And from December 2013 through August 2016, there was only one major men's heavyweight title in WWE. But in August 2016, shortly after... The brand split uh, had been, you know, in- enacted again between Raw and SmackDown, separate rosters. WWE created the universal title, which, of course, still exists today. So what, what I did is I took all the title histories for all three of those titles. And I did two different things with all that data. And I, I did one thing I'll talk about briefly and another thing I'll talk about a little bit more at length. Because I think that the second thing is a little bit more insightful. Not that strong conclusions should be drawn from any of this. By the way, what's the metric that we're dealing with here? It's Google web searches uh, on a worldwide basis. They are adjusted for volume according to Google. So as overall Google web search volume increased, this is supposed to adjust for that. Does Google web search tell you who's a draw? No, not, definitely not necessarily. Does WV make money when you Google... WB-related subjects? No. Is it possible that Google Web Search increases uh, when there's a major news story about someone, or when there's bad news about someone or something, or when someone is first introduced on a major media platform? Yes. In fact, the biggest month ever for Google Web Search for WB was June 2007. That's not because WB was very popular and financially successful in June 2007. That's because Chris Benoit uh, murdered his family in June 2007. Now, on the other hand, you do see who we typically perceive as the biggest stars. Those people do seem to have the most sustained Google web search volume. John Cena ranks highly. Roman Reigns... Ranks pretty highly too, not as highly as John Cena, but pretty highly. Brock Lesnar ranks highly, etc. I've spent a lot of time uh, studying how Google Web Search for WWE, after you make certain adjustments, was pretty good at predicting pay per view buy rates for WWE pay per views in the pre network era. So, what does this metric mean? I think it suggests to us something about the positive economic difference that one makes suggests come to think of it if i really wanted attention i, I need to do a similar study for the women's champions because i'll get the uh, the fan communities uh, the fan communities for uh for for women wrestlers in WBR are, are very passionate let's say but in this case whether it's it's fair or not uh, w has focused on men as its main inventors almost all of the time from 2004 and still to the present so i suppose that's why i chose to do this first so anyway, as any avid student of uh, w google search knows uh w- what you get the line that you get out of uh, out of this data is it's at, at about the uh the middle of the graph at the beginning, and then through about 2007, 2008, it goes up, and then it gradually declines, and then it rises back up again, peaks uh, somewhere in 2016, 2017, and then it declines, and has been gradually declining ever since. On a worldwide basis, in fact, the worldwide Google web search for WB is at its lowest point. Uh, this is a 12-month moving average. is at its lowest point that it's ever been just slightly lower than the point that it had been at in early 2004. The shape of the US only graph, or just the United States, has a similar shape, but the decline is not as low in the present. The US Google web searchers are still above the place where they were in 2004. Anyway, so I did a couple line graphs that I'll talk about briefly, and then, then I did a couple of column or bar graphs so the line graph I don't think tells me a lot that's interesting you know the WWE title one it starts out with Brock Lesnar and Eddie Guerrero down pretty low and then it rises up when you've got Edge and John Cena and there's remember there's innumerable factors innumerable is that a word there's a lot of factors that could also be contributing to why search for WWE is rising or falling but anyway you see a lot of you know, it gets traded back and forth between people like John Cena, Triple H, Randy Orton Blitter Del Rio, it's slightly declining over this time. The Rock, uh, John Cena. It starts to climb back up. Triple H, Roman Reigns, Dean Ambrose, AJ Styles, Bray Wyatt. Starts to fall, Jinder Mahal, AJ Styles, Daniel Bryan, Kofi Kingston, Brock Lesnar. So yeah, you know, that, that's, that's one of the line graphs. The other one with the World Heavyweight title and the Universal title. Of course, you start out with Triple H and Chris Benoit. It starts to grow uh, around the time that King Booker is the champion. We have a long reign from Batista, of course, in, uh, was that, 2006? Uh, 2005, 2006. Uh, people like The Undertaker have it. Edge, CM Punk, John Cena, Chris Jericho, Jeff Hardy, Kane. World heavyweight champion, Mayor Kane. And so on and so on. CM Punk, Daniel Bryan, Christian, Sheamus, Randy Orton, Alberto Del Rio, Dolph Ziggler, John Cena. And then it gets unified. It gets unified 2013. So we skip to uh, 2016. And you've got people like uh, Kevin Owens, Goldberg, Brock Lesnar, Rowan Reigns, Seth Rollins, Bray Wyatt, Goldberg. So th- all that really does is tell me about who was champion when the web search went up and went down, which I, I already know what the pattern of, of the web search is. You know, it's like we talked about, it starts out fairly low in 2004, gradually grows through 2007 or eight, then gradually declines until about 2014, gradually grows, 2017 declines through the present. And of course, it's not fair to anybody who's not champion during, say, WrestleMania time. The highest month for web search is usually April for WB because that's the month that Wrestlemania takes place, or if if it happens in March, it happens in late March. So there's an advantage for people who are champion around the time of Wrestlemania, and there's a disadvantage for the people who weren't. And maybe there are other seasonal factors associated with that as well. For example, I bet if I looked into it further, you, you might find that during the fall season that there's a little bit less interest than there is over the rest of the year. I bet that I would find the January to March or January to April period is a, uh, a higher uh, set of months for volume. So I was thinking, how can I adjust for that? So what I did was I took everyone's title, each one of the title reigns, and I can only do this for title reigns because we're dealing with monthly data. I'm only doing this for title reigns for which the title reign was at least one whole calendar month so if you had a very short rain or or even if you had a you know a rain that was as long as 50 or 60 days but it didn't uh overlap didn't encompass one entire calendar month you're not counted in this and your rain was relatively short anyway so i don't think it's as big of a deal cuz you, you you were providing a pretty small data sample anyway so anyway basically what i did was i took each title reign. And I said, well, what's the average monthly Google web search for this title reign? And we get an answer, which is a number. And I say, okay, with that, take that number and compare it to the same period of the year of the prior year. What's the difference in terms of percent? So even if you were a champion at a, at a disadvantaged time like the fall months or even if you were a champion at the uh, at the advantaged time of you know late winter and early spring there's some adjustment happening there because we're comparing your title reign months to the same months of the prior year and by the way you can find these graphs on the WrestleNomics Twitter account and, and with those basically those plus minus percent uh results that I got for each title reign I put them into a bar graph. And basically the answer for each title reign is a, is a negative or positive percentage number. The positive in green, the negative in red. So I suggest looking at that bar graph, but to summarize what you see is big bars, big green bars uh for things like the early WWE title reign of John Cena, uh a title reign for for Edge, a smaller Green bar for a a uh, a what is this a third John Cena title reign, but also a, a red a negative nineteen percent title reign for John Cena, what looks to be around I don't know two thousand eight or so. A uh, small green bars for the Miz, uh, for the John Cena title reign that followed that, and for the Rock title reign in there when he took the title from CM Punk, who has a small red bar. Then we see consecutive green bars for. Daniel Bryan, John Cena, Brock Lesnar, Seth Rollins, Triple H, the one where he wins it in the Royal Rumble. Roman Reigns, Dean Ambrose. Now we're starting to, the green bars are starting to shrink. Dean Ambrose, AJ Styles, Bray Wyatt. And then they turn red with the the biggest red bar on this graph. A negative 26% for Ginger Mahal. Slightly smaller red bar for AJ Styles. Uh, slightly smaller red bar for Daniel Bryan, Kofi Kingston, Brock Lesnar. And we've got Drew McI- McIntyre, who's just begun. Moving to the big gold belt slash universal title graph. Big green bars for Batista, Kurt Angle, Rey Mysterio, King Booker. They start to shrink dramatically uh, after that. To Batista, Undertaker Edge. Small green bar for Great Khali. I guess I think this one is generally a little bit less meaningful because the, the big gold belt was usually positioned as the second most important title Uh before the the main WWE title, small green bars for Edge, CM Punk, big red bar for Jack Swagger. Again, these are individual title reigns, not the in, entire wrestler's uh, history with the title. And mostly red bars for the rest of the history of of the uh, for the rest of this entire graph. In fact, small green bar for Sheamus, uh, Alberto Del Rio, Kevin Owens. Big red bar for a 2017 Brock Lesnar title reign. Of course, that coincides with the Jinder Mahal title reign. And then you have all red bars slightly smaller for the rest of the Universal title's history. So those are the results. Are there major takeaways to take away from this? First of all, this is all sort of investigated under the the presumption that who the champion is has something to do with the popularity of the brand or has something to do with the economics of the company. Certainly over time, who the champion is has mattered less, I would say. This certainly isn't the era of uh, Bob Backlund and Pedro Morales and uh, Bruno Sammartino, where the champion carried the company and was, was the person who was most associated with drawing the money in Hulk Hogan. But I think it is something that does matter to some extent and could matter a lot more if titles in WU were better protected and their importance more enhanced. But anyway, takeaways from this, I I think you see in here, keeping in mind that you kind of already know what the web search pattern is. It goes up in 2005 and 2006. And that does coincide with important title wins and title reigns from Batista and John Cena during that time and you do see green bars associated with their first title reigns here and you've got other players that are, that are around that same time like Kurt Angle and Edge in fact Kurt Angle's bar is even bigger than Batista's considering how Batista was positioned though at the time I, I'm more ready to accept that Batista was the difference maker there more so than Kurt Angle. In the decline that falls about 2007 or so, I would suggest this data sort of supports the idea that it's a lot of the same people who are champions now. Randy Orton, Triple H, John Cena. Sheamus is a new name that appears here. But most of these uh, personalities are are wrestlers who had already been been around for quite a few years. This adds something to the notion that not only does, does wrestling wrestling industry need stars to make an economic difference, but it needs fresh stars to make an economic difference. And then in 2014 through 2017, I think we see, well, we definitely see an increase in in Google web search. And I wonder if that was in part related to the WWE Network engaging people more. I don't know. But that does coincide with the rise of the three S.H.I.E.L.D. members, Roman Reigns, Seth Rollins, and Dean Ambrose coincides with the coronation of Daniel Bryan for a moment in 2014. Coincides with Brock Lesnar coming back to WWE as a pretty hot star, coming off a big UFC run. And if you look deep into the uh, Google web search data, you find that July 2016 actually, then the WrestleMania month of April 2016. And if you'll remember, July 2016 was the month that WWE restarted its brand split between Raw and SmackDown, which also coincided with SmackDown moving from Thursday to Tuesday and moving from a taped show to being a live show. Now, again, searches don't necessarily indicate money. But I think it suggests that WWE was doing something economically good and right around that time. As much as, like, I, as, as, a, as a viewer at the time, didn't like the idea of a brand split because I think it made things too complicated for my taste and would separate the champions again. But you take that in conjunction with what we know now about how WWE was able to sell SmackDown separately away from NBC Universal, away from the USA Network, and onto Fox rather than dealing Raw and SmackDown together to NBC Universal again as it had in the past. The brand split and the move to enhance SmackDown and put it make it a live TV show and to raise its importance and give it a separate roster and say what you want about how that's been maintained, over, especially over the last uh, year or two. But the brand split economically was a good thing for WWE. It allowed it to get larger TV rights fees than it would have otherwise, almost certainly because it was able to make a deal with the USA Network for Raw and with Fox for SmackDown, resulting in TV rights fees more than three times what they had been getting previously. But then what happened in 2017? This is still before, actually, W makes the deal for SmackDown with Fox. That doesn't happen until 2018. But if we just watch Google Web Search going into 2017 especially starting in the spring, it's a remarkable slide that begins both worldwide and in the U.S. Now I think there are a lot of things that have contributed to the decline in popularity of WB following 2017. As we talked about before here on WrestleNomics, you can see that in a number of metrics that actually do relate to revenue. You see those declines starting in 2016 or 17, whether that's raw viewership compared to TV overall, whether that's, uh, w network subscribers, which started to decline last year. Or that's attendant, total attendance that started to decline in 2018. Uh, merchandise sales started to decline in 2018. Product licensing revenue that started to decline in 2018. YouTube views that were actually down in 2019 versus 2018. And, if we, and Google web search that we're talking about here. And I think those declines basically have to do with the quality of the product. And the best way I've found yet to measure, uh, find a metric that considers what the quality of the product is, is to look at observer feedback and cage match.net ratings over time. Again, you can dismiss uh, these responses as just nerds who don't matter and who are never going to go away anyway. You can do that. I think you'd be wrong, possibly arrogant, but what you see in those two metrics, cage match ratings and observer feedback is not just that those respondents rated the shows low, but that their ratings for for WWE main roster pay-per-views trended downward uh, after 2016. So it's not just that they have some special non-representative taste, but that whatever their taste is, even if they are difficult customers to satisfy, they became less satisfied, at least with main roster pay-per-views, beginning in the year of 2017. And what's, well, one thing that happened in 2017 that may have contributed to viewers and consumers' perception about the product quality. Well, Jinder Mahal, who had not long before that uh, had been released and then had been rehired and was basically positioned as a as a undercard wrestler, suddenly became W champion. In a move that seemed to be related not necessarily to his talent among his peers, but mostly related to... The fact that he is of Indian descent and WWE saw the Indian market with its 1.4 billion people to be an important new market that WWE wanted to become even more popular in. This was a creative decision made not necessarily to satisfy fans, at least not those in their domestic market, but to appeal to a wider business strategy, which in fact even in the market that it was directed at, India, was not successful. With Jinder Mahal as champion still, WWE went to India and ran some house shows. They planned on running two house shows, possibly due to disappointing ticket sales. WWE canceled one of those house shows and ran just one instead. Shortly before making the trip to India, WWE took the title off of Jinder Mahal and put it on AJ Styles. But that's one factor among many. I think maybe this is one of a, of a type of factors Maybe Saudi Arabia is another example of this where the audience or the potential market is aware that the strategy is not to serve fans, but to serve a wider corporate interest. Indeed, the company's market has become more self-aware than the company, or at least the person behind the company. And we'll get to our main subject for the week, COVID-19. After this break.
1: And you know, when you say per capita, there's many per capita. It's just like per capita relative to what, but you can look at just about any category, and we're really at
0: the top, meaning positive on a per capita basis.
1: And I tested very positively in a.
0: In another sense, so this morning, yeah, I tested positively toward negative, right? So, no, I tested uh, perfectly this morning, meaning
1: meaning, I tested
0: negative. So I'm sure as listeners know, WWE is still doing events three days a week, or at least they're producing TV episodes that air three days a week. Some of them are taped in advance. AEW is still running events. AEW has a pay-per-view. Saturday, I think. That'll be live. AEW is running mainly out of Jacksonville. Did some shows in Georgia, but mainly in Jacksonville, which is in Duval County in Florida. WWE is running out of Orlando at the Performance Center, which is in Orange County in Florida. The CageMatch.net event database tells me that Impact is still running in Nashville, Tennessee. Dragon Gate is running in Kobe, Japan. Gato Move in Tokyo. All Japan Pro Wrestling in Chiba, Japan. DDT in Tokyo. Ice Ribbon in Saitama. Pro Wrestling NOAH in Kawasaki. All those, I believe, are empty building matches with no fans in attendance. I know that AAA in Mexico did at least one event with no fans. According to the Cubs fan on thecubsfan.com, AAA is looking at moving Triple Mania, which was planned to happen on August 22nd. The other major promotion in Mexico, CMLL, uh, according to the Wrestling Observer Newsletter, an internal message in CMLL was... Oh, Dave. ...was not to expect any shows with fans until September at the earliest in Mexico City. Because CMLL makes its revenue primarily from producing live events, empty arena shows don't make as much sense as they would for every other major company. Mexico City, Dave writes, has been hit harder than it has been let on, which is part of the issue. So I've been spending a lot of time in the last several days looking at COVID-19 data. And the main metrics we're going to look at, we're going to do some per capita uh, adjustments here, of course. But the, the main metrics we're going to look at are testing, cases, and deaths. And I'm going to be looking at the regions, the entire United States, just the state of Florida, Duval County, Orange County, the entire country of Japan, the Tokyo area, and the entire country of Mexico. I don't know that there's good data out there for Mexico City. So what I'm trying to understand is whether any of the data that I've collected, again that's it, is for all those regions that I just mentioned, and for the metrics which are testing cases and deaths, whether that can tell us anything about how safe or unsafe it is to continue to do these shows in empty buildings and the places where they're happening. So here's a summary of the data that I found. Again, a lot of this data is sourced from. I'll tell you where these are, these are sourced from. The Florida data is from the Florida Department of Health. The Tokyo data is from the Tokyo Metropolitan Government website, and the national data for the countries, the United States, the uh, Japan, and Mexico, those are from ourworldindata.org, which are ultimately sourcing their data from government. Uh, data sources, you can go to ourworldindata.org if you want to look at a thorough explanation of where they get their data from. So I'm going to summarize what I found here, and we'll talk about the potential challenges to this in a moment, the complications in reading the data. So when you look at daily new confirmed cases of COVID-19 per capita, in this case per million people, and you compare the United States, Japan, and Mexico, you see per million The United States has a lot more cases than either Japan or Mexico, and Mexico has more than Japan. And again, if you want to see these graphs that I'm looking at, I tweeted them at the WrestleNomics Twitter account. Maybe I will do a a written report with updated versions of these uh, in the coming days. So the United States has a lot more confirmed cases of COVID-19 than either Mexico or Japan. Of the three countries, Japan has the lowest number of daily confirmed cases per capita. So the United States leading strongly, but maybe that's the entire country. Maybe Florida is different. So let's compare daily new cases per capita in Florida to that of Japan. And still what you find is Florida, let's say over the last seven days, they're averaging 35 cases per million people, Japan averaging less than one case per million people. So, Florida in the last 7 days, the 15th through the 21st, 35 new confirmed cases per day per 1 million people. The country of Japan over the same time period, 0.4 people per million. 0.4. But Florida is a big state, Japan is a big country. Maybe it's different when we look at it by The relevant municipality. So I'm not aware of data particular to Orlando and Jacksonville, Florida, but there is data through the Florida Department of Health for Duval County and Orange County, which contain Jacksonville and Orlando, respectively. And we do have data from the Tokyo Metropolitan Government for Tokyo. So earlier in April, the the data for the Tokyo metro area, Orange County, and Duval County was more comparable. And this data too is adjusted per million people. Per million people, Orange County, Duval County doing somewhere around as low as 7 cases per million per day, as high as 30. Uh, Tokyo metro area doing as low as 7, as high as 14 or 15. So they're not too far apart. But uh, in May... And more so later in May, the number of cases per million people in Tokyo has decreased to under one for the last six days consecutively. Meanwhile, Duval and Orange County are in the 10 or 20 range. Uh, Orange County, the home of Orlando, doing an average of 16 cases per million uh, for the last seven days. That's the 15th to the 21st. Duval County doing 20 cases per day per million on average last seven days. So again, a seven-day average for the last seven days for Japan, 0.61. Duval County, 20. Orange County, 16. We don't have uh, deaths or testing data for the specific municipalities. That is Tokyo, Duval County, Orange County. But we do have deaths. I know I mentioned, I I promised death. Uh, I do have that by United States, Florida, and Japan. And it is a similar proportional comparison as it is for cases. The United States per capita has significantly more deaths per day than Florida. And Florida has significantly more deaths per capita than Japan. And a last seven day average, Japan doing... 0.1 0.1 deaths per million last seven days United States doing four deaths per million this is an average and Florida doing an average last seven days 0.98 deaths per million so a preliminary reading of that data would tell you that in the United States there's a lot more prevalence of COVID-19 uh, in the United States than there is in Florida and there is a lot more prevalence of COVID-19 in Florida than there is in Japan. There is a lot more prevalence of COVID-19 in both Duval County and Orange County than there is in Tokyo. A preliminary reading would tell you. But there are other things to consider. You have to consider testing. And it is true that in the United States, daily tests per thousand is many times higher than either Mexico or Japan. And the units that we're looking at here, unfortunately, are not consistent units. I think this is giving us a rough idea, but the United States, the units are labeled as inconsistent units. Our world in data.org says the testing data is gathered from individual states as reported in state health department websites, data dashboards and press releases from officials. States are reporting figures in a range of different ways. Some report the number of tests performed, others the number of people tested. Some include private labs, others not. Some report negative test results. Others only report positive test results. Some include pending tests. Others do not. The data from Japan is said to be people tested, and the data from Mexico is said to be cases tested. And we can also use the testing data to get an idea of how many tests it takes to find one positive case of COVID-19. So what we do there is you take all the tests cumulatively in each country, the United States, Japan, and Mexico, divided by the confirmed total cases that is cumulative over time as well. And basically the answer that you get is in Japan, it takes about 15 tests to find one positive case. In the United States, it takes about eight. In Mexico, it takes about three. So despite testing more broadly, the United States has about twice the positive rate of cases per test compared to Japan. Now, this is the best data that I'm aware of and that I can find, but that doesn't mean that there aren't problems with this data. Um, Of course, a study of confirmed COVID cases doesn't count how many cases there are that are not confirmed. And actual COVID cases may not be confirmed for any number of reasons, including inaccurate testing and a lack of available testing. The metric about COVID deaths, by the way, could also be incomplete due to a lack of of ability to confirm that the death was actually related to COVID-19 due to the same problems that there are with knowing how many cases there really are, but it seems likely that the portion of uncounted deaths that are related to COVID-19 would be considerably lower in proportion compared to the uncounted cases, since it seems that a a person who is dying from COVID-19 is likely to have received medical attention immediately before death, and therefore those people are more likely to be tested, and maybe repeatedly so. So I said at the top, I'm more of a, a wrestling business analyst than I am a medical data analyst, so I definitely didn't want to come here and start to talk about medical data without being more informed. So I've corresponded with Dr. Alex Patel, who also discussed the data that I showed him with a colleague of his who has a background in epidemiology. So the issue with the empty arena shows that at this point are primarily happening in Duval County, Orange County, and in Japan, some in Tokyo, some not in Tokyo. And presumably before any of these events, you would think that they are screening for symptoms. There are some public comments to that effect. So the numbers of testing isn't as relevant unless we know who is being tested. If in the United States, mainly symptomatic people are being tested those people would probably be excluded at the door. So you could argue that that data doesn't apply. But as time has gone on, the medical community has learned that if you test everyone, or as I take it, sort of test people at random, you find that about half of the positive cases were asymptomatic. That is about half of the positive cases of COVID-19. When you test everyone are people who did not have COVID-19-like symptoms. So if you think about the general person who's showing up at the door at an empty arena show, they are probably more like a a random person out of the population, although they may be at higher risk because they may be traveling. So the data shows that prevalence of COVID is higher in the U.S. and in Florida than it is in Japan. And at least in a U.S. to Japan comparison, the number of positive tests that they're getting in the U.S. is higher than it is in Japan per capita. So if you assume the risk of having COVID in in some given person who shows up at the door is X percent, the screening for symptoms at the door eliminates about half of, let's say, the actual cases. But in order to weed out the people who are positive cases but are asymptomatic, it seems that you would need testing and, in fact, accurate testing to weed them out. But the conclusion here is that if COVID prevalence in the United States and in Florida is greater than that of Japan, then the risk to the people involved and to the public, if all precautions are equal, is greater in the United States and in Florida than it is in Japan, which is not to say that it's safe in Japan either. So again, presumably COVID-19 prevalence is one strong factor, probably the strongest factor among other significant factors like precautions and testing and maybe taking people's temperature, or at least detecting them for symptoms. Uh, but, but prevalence is probably the strongest factor in determining how safe operating these empty arena wrestling events is, uh, again, as it relates to the people who are, who are doing them, the wrestlers, the staff, and to the public who they may subsequently come in contact with. In other words, the more prevalent COVID-19 is in a given area, the less safe it is to operate events in that area if all other factors are equal. And I think one factor that makes things not equal is whether or not uh, you are testing people in advance. Uh, As we discussed uh, before, WWE has not confirmed to anyone publicly that they are testing. Uh, AEW CEO Tony Khan says at least on one occasion that they did test people. And I don't know of any tests that are happening in Japan uh, among the wrestling promotions that are running empty arena events there. But the data shows us a few things. Uh, One, that COVID-19 is probably more prevalent in the U.S. than it is in Japan. Uh, COVID-19 is probably more prevalent in Florida than it is in either Japan or Tokyo. And that COVID-19 is probably more prevalent in the Florida counties of Duval and Orange County uh, than it is in either Japan or Tokyo. And Duval is where AEW is running. Orange is where WWE is running. So, based on the data, the events happening in Florida, including in Duval and Orange counties, are probably more unsafe than the events happening in Japan or Tokyo if all other factors determining safety are equal. In other words, if all events worldwide are taking the same precautions, which we know not they're not, but if they were all taking the same precautions and any other factors determining safety are the same, events in Florida, including in those two counties, are probably more unsafe than events in Japan or Tokyo. There are obviously economic factors at play for all the promotions that are weighing into their decisions about whether or not they're going to run events in, in these conditions, and how often, what their taping schedules are. New Japan Pro Wrestling doesn't have major TV rights fees, so it gains little if they run empty arena events. And they haven't ran an event since February 26th although uh, new Japan president Harold may said that they will do so in the future. That'll be a part of their, their phasing into returning to normal. And WB and AEW on the other hand are heavily financially dependent on TV rights fees. And they're the ones who are probably running the most frequent events with no fans. So I just find it interesting, not necessarily surprising, but just interesting and telling, maybe something about human nature, that New Japan isn't running events during this time, even though it has a home area where it's probably safer by quite a bit to run empty arena events than it is in the United States, Florida, or those two counties. And on top of that, many of the next biggest companies in Japan are, are running events. Dragon Gate is, DDT is, NOAA, All Japan. So it seems like there's some some bandwagon cover for them, at least as far as PR. If something bad were to happen, or if or if people are criticizing them. And another point, I don't, I guess I don't understand then why New Japan is not running and those other companies are. I don't know what they have to gain by running. Maybe they do gain something financially in terms of TV commitments. So if anybody knows about the. Uh, What the deal is with uh, certain companies in Goera, which is a a channel that a lot of the companies air TV on, uh, let me know. But I do wonder if if the United States or certain areas within it uh, had Japan or Tokyo's level of COVID-19 prevalence, which is comparatively low, whether we would already be seeing fans welcome at events again, or maybe on a limited social distancing basis. According to the latest observer, Vince McMahon was hoping to uh, be able to do SummerSlam in Boston in August. And that seems unlikely. But I think it's confirming to anyone who had any doubt just what the factors are determining whether or not certain companies are going to run empty arena events or not. And I think it tells you something about how much safety is actually weighing into the decision making. The bigger deciding factor seems to be the revenue. The economics that New Japan, with much less relative risk, which is not to necessarily say that it would be safe, is not running events for months of any kind, and much less to gain financially. But the major U.S. companies that do have a lot to gain financially, they are running entertainment events. And then, just to think further, the the prevalence in Japan is so relatively low that. I wonder if in this country, in this culture, if there would not be a strong push uh, within the wrestling industry and many, many other industries to reopen events completely and reopen the economy completely. Meanwhile, there's still a state of emergency in Tokyo, and there are definitely not normal wrestling events happening in Tokyo or Japan. So that's all I have for today. We're almost at the one hour mark. I do want to try to keep these under an hour. There are a lot of great, really long podcasts out there. But I am especially short-winded. I don't know how I even make it this long every week. We didn't get to the brief history of WWE's US TV rights. That is definitely something I plan on doing in the future. Either written or audio. Uh, Thanks to Dr. Patel for helping me understand the COVID-19 data. If you want to support WrestleNomics, go to independentwrestling.tv. I've been helping them out with data. You can subscribe to independentwrestling.tv by using the promo code WrestleNomics. Get a five-day free trial. If you'd like you you end up becoming a paid subscriber. That helps me. Thanks to everybody for listening. You can find more information at WrestleNomics.com. You can follow WrestleNomics at WrestleNomics. You can follow me at Brandon Thurston. And I'm Brandon Thurston. I will talk to you next time. Hey.